Welcome to the next episode of PI Perspectives. Matt took this one on the road to the mysterious bookshop in New York City on January 30th for the book signing event for The Art of Investigation. He was able to sit down with seven of the 15 authors for quick interviews. Today's episode is brought to you by Delft Point. Delft Point was founded by investigators with more than 70 years of combined service in the industry. From missing persons cases and custody disputes to insurance investigations and criminal cases, Delft Point's billions of records from all three credit bureaus allows you to develop a complete profile of your subject. Check out the special link for investigators in the show notes. Now let's join Matt and his first two guests, Robert Ron and Kim Anklin. Robert works with Kim at Management Resources. They wrote about the theme tenacity. Check out their amazing story of how they were able to free a man wrongfully accused who served 25 years for a murder he didn't commit. Now here's your host, private investigator Matt Spare. And welcome to the next episode of PI Perspectives. Uh, this is Matt Sperry, your host. I am excited to be at the book signing today for The Art of Investigation. And uh, rightfully so, I got the chapter one author sitting in front of me, uh, Robert Ron. And we're gonna talk a little bit about his chapter. So uh, Robert, thank you uh, for sitting with me. And Kim actually is here also, and we're gonna sit down and talk to her next. Let's just talk about your chapter a little bit, give you a little bit of, about your background. So thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having us, I appreciate it. So tell me a little bit about your chapter and what exactly it's about. Give me a little uh, overview of it. The chapter that we were given is, uh, was, is entitled Tenacity. We based our wrongful conviction investigation. We used that story for the chapter. That was the basis for the, the tenacity because it did take a lot of tenacity to, to keep going and, and get our client out of jail. Jonathan was uh, convicted of murder and served almost 25 years, and he was innocent. He always maintained his innocence. He contacted us, he reached out to us and contacted us and asked us if we would investigate his case, and we decided to take it on, and uh, thankfully, we saw it through. We were able to see it through, and we did get him out after 25 years. So tell me a little bit about your background and how you got uh, into doing investigative work. And then, you know, tell me a little bit. uh, I read the chapter already, so I know there's a lot of really cool nuggets in there. So tell me like some of the really cool things that you came across when you're doing. So give me background first and then a little bit about the chapter itself. My background is uh, in law enforcement. I was in the uh, NYPD for 20 years. During that time, I worked as a uh, homicide detective in Brooklyn. In the area, at times I was in the area where uh, our investigation took place in, in Williamsburg, but I worked as a detective. I uh, eventually got promoted to sergeant and lieutenant, and uh, after I put my 20 years in, I retired. And um, I decided that during the time that I was a detective was probably the most rewarding time in my whole career in law enforcement, and I enjoyed the work and I loved doing it. So when I retired, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I thought about it and I said, well, you love this type, you love being a detective. Why don't you try, you know, in the private sector? So uh, I retired in November of 93. I opened my practice in uh, March of 94 and it's going, uh, going quite well. What type of work do you specialize in um, in your investigative work and how long have you been working with Kim? I've been working with Kim for almost 18 years. Uh, We do uh, 
civil investigations, personal injury, wrongful death types of cases, uh, and we do criminal defense, uh, pre-trial, post-trial, and we also do wrongful conviction investigations. So let's talk a little bit about the case in the, the book. Tell me a little bit about the background. Tell me some of the challenges that you guys had, and then tell me the end result of, of what happened. The background of, uh, of the chapter, of the story in the book, is, is that uh, Jonathan Fleming was convicted and sentenced to 25 to life for a homicide which occurred in Williamsburg houses. He maintained his innocence. Uh, he was in Florida at the time of the homicide with his family, with his mother, uh, with his kids. There were plane receipts, there were hotel receipts, there were all kinds of overwhelming evidence that corroborated his story that he was there. However, he was found guilty and was convicted and uh, he reached out to us from prison and, and asked us if we would look into the case and we started off we started off by reading the transcripts, and there were mountains of transcripts, thousands of pages. And that's really what Kim did. She went through all of the transcripts. I went through the police reports. And then we decided to view the crime scene ourselves and get a feel for what happened. And I think that's what kind of led us to believe that we were, you know, that Jonathan was innocent. Yeah, it's definitely a story that's worth checking out. Um, one of the things I thought that was really amazing was how you, you were able to find this witness down in the South, and then uh, you, you were able to uh, basically get him to sign a statement, and then a new DA came in and everything was put on hold. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, we went down to South Carolina to get the witness statement in November. In fact, it was election day in New York when we went down there. While we were obtaining the statement from the witness, first he gave it to us verbally, then he gave it to us in writing, and we were running back, back and forth to the, to the Williamsburg Sheriff's Office down there in South Carolina to get the documents signed and notarized and sent faxed back to New York. So we were all thrilled and excited that we got a, a statement that we felt was going to be very positive for the case. And we go back to the hotel, and we're sitting down having dinner, and we're watching the news and was saying, and it says that the DA is no longer the DA and he was voted out. So we went back to New York the next day and we're trying to figure out, you know, what happens now. And unfortunately, uh, although we had the evidence to show that Jonathan did not do it, we had to wait until the new DA took office, Ken Thompson took over, and then uh, he wanted to familiarize himself with the cases so it took a few more months uh, before we were actually got Jonathan out. Okay, so we're, we're going to leave your better half to finish the story on this. Uh, I, I appreciate you sitting down with me, and we're going to have Kim coming in just a minute. Uh, just tell folks real quickly how they can get a hold of you, like uh, you know, your email address or, or anything like that. Our website is nysleuth.com. My email address is brawn at nysleuth.com. And you can also reach us at 845-781-7233. Thank you. So we are back with Kim Anklin, Robert Ron's partner here. Thank you, Kim, for joining us. And we're going to pick up the story where we left off. But before we do that, I just uh, tell me a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got into the business. Sure. Thank you for having me. Um, Bob and I have been working together now 17 years. 
Uh, prior to that, I was a crime and intelligence analyst for the city of Ventura Police Department. And right after 9-11, I started thinking about coming back home. And probably about six months of the day, I made it back home. And I met Bob a few months later, and we started doing investigative work, and we haven't stopped since. Great. I think he said yeah, you guys were together about 17 years. Okay. So let's jump back into the story real quick and uh, where we left off. We have the cliffhanger here. <laughs> the DA had just switched in Brooklyn, and now you had this case that was dead. So let's talk about that a little bit. So I'm, I'm guessing that's when, um, after we had gone to South Carolina, and we had found out after we secured the confession, and we came back to the hotel and we're all high-fiving each other and found out that the district attorney had lost the election. And what that did basically was push back for several months, our, our release for him. It was a very frustrating time. At the same time that we were trying to get him still released, uh, Jonathan was coming up for parole. So we worked very hard to work on his parole package, but also to get him in a headspace to say, listen, you have convinced other people that you're innocent. Now, all you got to do is convince these people that are on the parole board, just like kind of as a plan B. He was, he was pretty upset. And we were very, very fortunate because we had submitted the entire parole package up to Albany. And the day that it arrived at the prison, his counselor came to him at his cell with the package. And he, she said to him, Jonathan, your parole package came. And he says, okay, great. She says, but along with an order that you were to be produced in Brooklyn at Kings County, and he, he just shook his head. She says, you're going home. And he just said he sat on his cot and just started sobbing. And that was, uh, I believe, April 7th. And he was produced April 8th. He came down from Wendy Prison, which is all the way up, like, Buffalo area. Yeah, it's just an amazing story. So I uh, encourage everybody to go out and get the book. It's just such a great way to open up the book, actually. The story is, like, uh, amazing. I mean, it's riveted. I uh, just rifled through it. Um, why don't we tell folks how they can get a hold of you? You can get a hold of us through our website. We're at Management Resources um, Limited of New York or simply NewYorkSleuth.com, NYSleuth.com. That's the best way to, to find us. And then check us out on our website, and you can see all the things that we've been up to and all the cases that we've done. All right, Kim, thank you so much for sitting down with us, and uh, we're going to push on to the next uh, interviewer, but thank you. I appreciate it. Our next guest is Emmanuel Welch of French Connection Research. Her book topic is Curiosity. She discusses how she uses Internet research and her curious nature to solve her clients' cases. She's a certified fraud examiner and is the vice president of the Society of Professional Investigators. Okay, so we are back with our next guest here. It's Emmanuel Welch. Uh, she wrote Chapter 3 on Curiosity, and she's a private investigator here in New York. So thank you for sitting down with us, Emmanuel, and tell me a little bit about your background. Oh, hi, Matt. So I come from journalism. Uh, I became a private investigator in Washington, D.C. in um, 2008, and uh, I've been uh, licensed in New York State since 2013. And I specialize in uh, fraud investigations, especially French-American fraud cases, um, uh, corruption cases, uh, any cases of uh, embezzlement between France and the U.S., and also landlord and tenant investigations here in New York. 
because uh, it's it's still uh, a, a huge part of what uh, New York PIs do, and uh, I do a lot of OSINT, which is open source intelligence. Great. So I know uh, we've known each other through the Society of Professional Investigators for many years. Um, you, your background is in journalism, correct? Yes. Yeah, so I was a reporter. I was a foreign um, a foreign correspondent in Eastern Europe, and then I moved to Cuba for a short period of time, and uh, Los Angeles, which is uh, almost like a, like a foreign country sometimes when you look at it from uh, New York. And uh, I covered Silicon Valley, Hollywood, and uh, in Washington D.C. I worked for a French um, public television station as a producer. Okay, great. So tell me a little bit about your chapter, what it was about, and um you know, how you were able to do what you did in your chapter on, on curiosity. So the chapter on curiosity came about, um, what was interesting is that being curious, is it something that you can really um, grow? Is it, uh, is it a muscle that you can, um, you can work and uh, can you practice your curiosity? And I was very interested in that. So I did some research on it and I combined uh, the, the research with some personal anecdotes and uh, examples of how um, investigators, especially when you specialize in OSINT, open source intelligence and uh, research on the web, uh, why you need to remain curious because you need to bounce back on your feet a lot because tools like search tools to search um, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Snapchats disappear overnight and you need to adapt and be able to be creative. Uh, and to be creative, you need to be curious and find it interesting to study Twitter, to try new tools, new apps, to try it themselves with your kids or with your friends. But so that you, you, you need to be interested and curious about how those tools and websites work so that you can look under the hood of these websites and see the code perhaps of a Twitter page uh, and, and, and be able to uh, maybe find a new solution when tools go, go dark, go bad, which we've seen a lot lately. Yeah, I think that's uh, one of the things I really appreciated about it was just the, uh, uh, the way you, you walk through uh, the trials and errors and uh, you know, the end result of, of being successful. Um, so uh, how long have you been doing this specific open source uh, intelligence investigations? I started, you know, as because I was covering Silicon Valley in the late 90s, uh, I was very interested in, in these new technologies and I was one of the first bloggers uh, who, who was blogging in French uh, as a journalist. And um, so I tried all the new apps. Uh, I was, you know, early on I was on Friendsters. I was friends with... Um, um, people who were uh, working for Wired magazine, for um, uh, Bueng Bueng, the, the, the blog, and uh, high-tech writers. So I, I was trying all these tools and I really liked it. So I would say, you know, I was already studying um, web research in maybe 2003 or four is when I took my first training with Cynthia Etherington in California. She came, she was the cyber investigator back then, the cyber librarian, and she, she gave a training to uh, an association I was part of in Los Angeles, and, uh, and she was so cool. I really wanted to be like her. I was like, wow, it's amazing what she can do with Google. She's teaching us uh, all these tricks, and we can go so far beyond, uh, you know, we, we maybe use 10% of what we can with Google, and there's so many tricks, and it, the same, it, it applies with every online tool or every online website platform that you use. Uh, you underuse them, and it's very interesting to explore and learn tricks and, uh, and uh, techniques, and uh, you feel like you're, you're gaming the system. 
Yeah, Cynthia was a, a guest earlier this year, and it was just fantastic uh, to have her uh, come in and, and chat. So, um, okay, so uh, tell folks how they can get a hold of you. So they can um, go to my webpage, which is uh, frenchpi.com or frenchdetective.com, or they can come to a dinner of the Society of Professional Investigators in New York City once a month. It's uh, on the third uh, Thursday of the month uh, at Forlini's in uh, Chinatown, close to Little Italy. And uh, we can meet in person. That's what I like about this association is that we meet in person. So we can be, you know, in cyberspace all week doing some uh, investigations, but at least we meet in person and network in person and shake hands and uh, uh, I love the camaraderie. So, yeah, come to a meeting. We can meet in person or at Osmosis Conference or other conferences. I, I usually show up at conferences for training. Well, spoken like a true board member, you're plugging the next meeting of your association. I love it. So, thank you so much for sitting down and uh, we'll chat again soon. Thank you. Take care. Coming up next is Bill Jorgensen. Bill is the former associate commissioner of the Department of Investigation of New York City. His chapter is on professionalism. Bill worked over three decades as a prosecutor and did lots of work out in Staten Island, New York. Okay, so we're here with our next guest here, Bill Jorgensen, who wrote Chapter 13 on uh, professionalism. So thank you, Bill, for uh, sitting down with us and uh, tell me a little bit about your background. I'm a lifelong criminal prosecutor. Uh, I've been an attorney in the criminal justice field for over almost 30 years now. And uh, I've worked in a number of different agencies and now I'm out on my own. Criminal justice has always been a passion of mine, uh, probably because it's a lot more exciting to figure out, you know, who killed who and why and what did they do with the money and how did they hide the drugs than figuring out whether or not the S-cheated law was properly drafted or what's going on in the four corners of the contract. Um, And that's what always got me interested. Uh, So, you know, it's been something I've been doing my entire life. Yeah, I think a lot of us start off with the idea of being a lawyer, and then we end up gravitating towards doing the investigation stuff, just because, you know, it's more fun. Um, So your chapter was on professionalism. Why don't you tell me a little bit about the background of the chapter, and then, uh, you know, some of the uh, case studies of it. Okay, so uh, the reason why I chose professionalism was because... I think the biggest mistake that people make in our field, especially the litigators, is they take things too personally. And it's very easy to get caught up in the investigation in an emotional sense. And uh, some of the biggest problems that I personally have had, and this is how I learned it the hard way, were times when I took the case to heart too deeply. Uh, So, you know, you need that professional detachment. Uh, And this is what's going to help you get over the tough spots, right? This is what's going to get you through that time when, you know, your your knees are shaking and you're sweating and you can't figure out what to do because, heck, this is really important. You know, somebody died here or somebody lost millions of dollars or somebody's life savings was wiped out. And, And so that professional detachment is what is essential actually what is critical towards uh, maintaining your focus as an attorney and as an investigator and as a law enforcement professional at large. So talk to me a little bit about the the case study uh, within your chapter and what you were uh, covered and talked about. Well, I talked about a number of different uh, case studies. I didn't have just one, um, but I can, the one that just jumps out in my mind was a case involving a homicide that occurred in Staten Island. And I had gone to the crime scene because when you are an assistant DA, you have to do what we call ride-alongs or felony duty, where basically you're on 24-hour notice and, you know, whatever comes in, you got to go out. 
which very often meant that you have to get up in the middle of the night on a cold, wet, rainy night in, you know, February and go out to some really scary part of the town, almost always on your own, and find the crime scene and then learn as much as you can and then report back to the bosses. So uh, on this one particularly cold, dark night, I don't think it was raining, I got the call and I had to go to a crime scene. Um, now, in this particular case, the body was already gone, uh, but I've certainly seen plenty of dead bodies in my tenure. And uh, it was just interesting because it was a crime scene that spread out all over the place. So I go in, I take the information, I uh, go to the boss the next morning, I tell him what you know happened, and then I went home and went to bed. So about a week goes by, and this subject comes in, and he says that he did the, he was the murderer. Uh, and he has this crazy story. Uh, and it was, I remember talking to my boss at the time and saying, you know something? This just this is so crazy it might actually be true. And, and the only reason I knew that was because I went to the scene. So we sit down and we listened. And that's the first thing about being a professional is that you have to put your judgment about the person you're dealing with on hold. Because let's face it, in this business you can deal with some pretty awful people. Um, so I, I, you know, I'm not going to judge, I'm just going to listen. And sure enough, it was a crazy story, but it was crazy enough to be believable. So the next thing I did was I called up the defense attorney. And the defense attorney knew that, he knew me by reputation, he knew that I was not going to play games, and I certainly wasn't going to cheat or, you know, pull the wool over his eyes. And I said, Andy, do you trust me? He said, yeah. I said, I need you to work with me on this case. So don't fight me about, you know, getting this guy out or anything else. The detective and I are going to get to the bottom of this. And the detective, I, I won't say her name, but she was a real pro okay and we went out and we interviewed every shady character that you could imagine you know drug addicts and gangbangers and pimps and prostitutes and all these people that normally you don't want to give you don't want to give 10 feet of but by maintaining that professional detachment and focusing on the crime at hand we were able to uncover enough details that it turns out that this guy really did, his story actually did add up. He had acted in self-defense, and even though no one person could back up the entire story, everybody added a little bit of peace to the story. And even though it took us a long time, and we spent a lot of time in a grand jury, a lot more than we normally would have, at the end of the day, we determined that the guy actually had acted in self-defense. And as a result, he was, the charges were dropped. Um, and, and, you know, you'd think as a prosecutor that that would not be a story that I would want to tell. But honestly, because being a prosecutor is about doing justice and not about convictions or numbers or putting people in jail, I'm very proud of what we did. Because it could have been easier to just charge the guy with murder and maybe push him into taking a plea uh, or going to trial. At the end of the day, we chose the hard path because that was the right path. And we did it because we were professionals. We recognized that there's a job that needs to be done. And if it means that you have to stay up late and you got to go out in the middle of the night and you got to do things you don't normally want to do or deal with people you don't normally like, well, then that's what you do because that's what a professional does.
That's great. And uh, it was a great chapter. I, I, I read through it. Uh, lots of really good nuggets there. So I encourage folks to check it out. So uh, why don't you tell folks how they can get a hold of you? So I'm a private attorney. Uh, and if anybody wants to reach out to me, they can get me at pwjorg at optonline.net. Perfect. Thank you so much, Bill, for your time. I appreciate it. Enjoy the evening. Take care. This episode is brought to you by the Society of Professional Investigators. If you're in New York City on February 20th, join them at Ferlini's in Little Italy. The speaker will be Paul Callen. Paul will speak about the hot topic of bail and criminal justice reform in New York State. You don't want to miss this meeting. Let's jump back in with attorney Daniel Alonzo. Daniel's chapter theme is initiative. He has an amazing story how he helped defrauded investors recover money in an international Ponzi scheme. His chapter reads like a real-life John Grisham novel. Okay, so we are back here with Dan Alonzo, the author of Chapter 6. Uh, Dan, what was the, uh, the theme of Chapter 6? Uh, chapter 6 was on initiative. Okay, so chapter six was on initiative. So um, just such a great, I was telling you before we turn on, just such a great chapter, man. Like I could not put it down. It was uh, really awesome. Um, just uh, just had a great time um, going through and, and, and reading it. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your background um, and then get into, uh, I guess, your story and what you wrote about. Sure. I've been a lawyer for almost 30 years. The majority of that time has been as a prosecutor, both state in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and federal in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of New York. The whole time, pretty much, I focused on fraud and corruption. So some of my my career, other than being a prosecutor three different times, was I was a private lawyer at a large international corporate law firm. And for the last five and a half years, uh, until very recently, I was an executive at a large risk management uh, firm that also does corporate investigations yeah I think in the in the chapter what I really loved about it was this whole thing of like the way you set the scene that you're going into this like a bar hotel bar and you had no idea what was gonna happen and uh, it, it was like clear and present danger for me like uh, reading that yeah I mean the theme was initiative and so I thought to myself well you know where in my career had I shown initiative and that situation which was it was a cafe in a neighborhood in Buenos Aires that I had never been to before and I was you know told to go there and I would receive further instructions you know the idea was I was investigating a Ponzi scheme on behalf of the federal court in Connecticut I had been recommended by the Commodity Futures Trading Commission to investigate this matter and to as the receiver and I was supposed to sort of figure out where the assets were what happened and figure out an equitable way to return the money to the investors so when I traveled to the scene of the crime which was Argentina which is where I'm from, incidentally, I, I get into that in the chapter, I was, I sort of hit pay dirt pretty quickly when one of the defrauded investors said to me, you know, the guy, the bad guy, not such a bad guy. He's been trying to do what he can since he got caught to return money to people. I'm like, what? And so he said, yeah, you want to meet him? And I was, so I had this meeting arranged to go to this strange cafe in Buenos Aires and sit down, put my cell phone down, and I would get further instructions. Yeah, I thought that was so awesome. And then it's like, I, I hope your assistant isn't with you, because if they take you out, they're going to take you both out, right? I was with a young lawyer from my law firm, which was uh, called Kay Scholler, and I did not take her with me. I didn't want anything to happen. I also, you know, the initiative theme was so interesting because 
I'm convinced, as I write in the chapter, that nine out of ten partners at big law firms in New York would have said no to that meeting. And not that I'm so brave, but that I had a cultural understanding of Argentina and I was probably less skeptical that anything would happen. Some might say I was foolhardy, but in any event, I did it. I went. The phone rang. I went inside and I got to meet the guy. And I ended up spending four hours with him. Uh, once I convinced him that I wasn't there to arrest him and I wasn't a, a cop, I was just a receiver appointed by the court, we had a long conversation. He told me everything. Yeah, it's just a great story, man. And, and I, I just uh, appreciated the way that you, you kind of walked everybody through it. And, you know, it's amazing that this opportunity presented itself really because of, of your bilingual ability, right? I think that's right. I also think it wasn't a coincidence that I was picked to be the receiver. The, the CFTC was aware of my, my background and the fact that I was a native speaker of Spanish. And so that's one of the reasons. I was also a fraud and corruption specialist. So they recommended me to the court on that basis. All right, great. So um, how do folks get a hold of you? Uh, well, interestingly, I just left uh, Exeger, this large risk management firm, last Friday, and in two and a half weeks, I'm starting at a law firm as a partner. I'm going back to private practice, doing what I did when I had this case. It hasn't been announced yet, so I promise I'll tell you as soon as it is. Yeah, by the time this episode comes out, we'll have it in the show notes how they can get a hold of you. So, uh, Dan, thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed your chapter. So, uh, yeah, thanks for taking the time to write it. I really appreciate the nice words. Thanks. Matt sits down with James Gagliano. James is a former FBI agent, and he currently is an analyst for CNN. James wrote about having empathy. He discusses his experience in Newburgh, New York, and how he helped turn around this crime-riddled city. We are here with our next guest, Jim Gagliano, uh, who wrote the last chapter of the book, Chapter 15, on empathy. So, Jim, uh, thanks for joining us. Tell me a little bit about your background. So I think everybody kind of was taken aback by the fact that I would be writing about empathy because if you look at me, you know, six foot four, tattoos, shaved heads, I don't exactly exude empathy, but I thought it was um, one of the one of the characteristics that really jumped out at me when I was given an opportunity to get involved in this project. And it really is something I think that law enforcement has to be imbued with and has to have in order to protect and serve the, the, the communities that they're they're in charge of you know, taken care of. My background, um, West Point class in 1987, spent four years in the Army as an infantry officer, airborne ranger, um, left the Army in 1991, right before the first Persian Gulf War, of course, um, and then uh, was in the FBI for 25 years, serving in a whole host of positions from a street investigator on drug squads, organized crime squads, a SWAT team leader, member of the FBI's hostage rescue team at Quantico, Virginia, uh, worked undercover for a number of years. Um, was an FBI leader and executive manager, um, worked overseas, Afghanistan, parts of the Middle East, Africa. Uh, one of my final assignments was as the legal attache, the FBI director's direct representative to the, to the Mexican government in Mexico City, and then finished out my time here in New York City as a de facto chief of staff, a special assistant to the assistant director in charge, who's the senior member of the FBI's New York office, which is really one-tenth of the FBI's workforce here in New York City. So that's my background, blessed and kind of in a Forrest Gump type of sense 
to just be in an incredibly the right place at the right time to see and experience and work with some really great people. And, and now you're uh, uh, a regular contributor on CNN, correct? So I, I am a full-time law enforcement analyst for CNN. That, again, was something that, uh, I, again, I go back to Forrest Gump as my, as my example. Never expected to uh, be a part of. I entered the FBI at 25. I wanted to do 25 years, so fully one half of my life in the FBI. Experienced so much, really privileged, and wanted to leave to go teach. St. John's University in Jamaica, Queens gave me a great opportunity to work towards my doctorate while I was teaching undergraduates. The CNN gig kind of happened out of nowhere, and it's been really a blessing to be, have the opportunity to kind of demystify law enforcement processes and protocols on television. Never expected it. Yeah, we were talking before we turned the uh, the microphone on. We had uh, spoken at a conference together in in October, and I had the privilege of following this man over here, who was I uh, put a, a, an amazing presentation on leadership, and uh, they handed me the mic afterwards, and I was like, "Oh, great!" <laughs> One of the things about me now being a public speaker in the realm of law enforcement and crisis management and leadership and things like that, all the people that went to West Point with me back in the mid-80s just smile and chuckle themselves knowing that I graduated in the bottom of my West Point class in 1987. And as my wife always says, you know, they do pay you well to be the dancing monkey that you are. So it's part of the performative arts. So the other thing I love is is we're connected on LinkedIn and the throwback photos that you, that you post, man, they're just amazing. I love them. Yeah. So it, it's one of those kind of things where, you know, without, you know, we have camera phones now and everything is documented and people can take a picture and snap it here and there. But back when I was in the FBI from 1991 to 2015, we didn't have that. So very rarely there'd be people that would have either disposable cameras or something like that. And I managed to collect and harvest some of those photos. And it's funny to go back and look at how things were back in the day. It's it's crazy. I missed the boomer generation by one month because I was, I was born January 30th. Today's my birthday. 1965, but I get a lot of okay boomers when I say that to people. I'm afraid I may get them soon too, and I'm I'm not there. I'm much younger than you, but I look I look a lot older. So that's cool. Uh, I I really again um, I enjoyed your chapter, man, and it's it is really amazing that actually what what you wrote about in the project that was so it seems so passionate like the passion was was flowing through in in your writing so tell me a little bit about that chapter and and what that was about so really appreciate that because um you know as i tried to to bring forth in the chapter law enforcement is all about you know we are the rule of law we're the thin blue line we're the sheepdogs we are what separates you know law-abiding citizens the innocent the people that need to be protected from the small criminal element but the dangerous criminal element in our country and um to, to to delve into my chapter which was which was on empathy um it was just an expression or a a, a an appeal i guess it was to the to the reader if it's a a young student in criminal justice or somebody who's a law enforcement aficionado who wants to understand it um, law, enforcement, law enforcement officers have to be humans. They have to be able to connect on a human level to people. And you, you, you have to be the tough guy. And there are certain times where you have to shut things down, where things get to a certain point. But de-escalation, which is such a 2020 term, but it's important. Law enforcement officers in, in, in this day and age, the 21st century, they have to be 
They have to be wellness practitioners. They have to be psychologists. They have to be sociologists. They have to be mental health professionals. They have to be counselors. And they have to be good with the steel and good with their hands. All those things that we ask a young cop who may be 20, 21 years old, maybe they have an associate level degree, maybe they're a high school graduate, but it's an important trait to teach them how communicating with people, reading the signs are so important. Empathy is a really, what I believe is one of the biggest and most important qualities law enforcement officers have to have. Great. So I, I know one of the things that really um, talks to me about that uh, chapter, you know, you were dealing with Newburgh, New York. I live up around Dutchess County. And I remember when, you know, those problems were going on. I remember the young kid had gotten killed on his stoop. Uh, and it was right about the time I think I was actually starting my business. I'd been in business a, a, a couple of years and I had been up in that area for work on, a, on another case. And I was just like, wow, this is where this all uh, went down. So tell me a little bit about the work that you've done up in Newburgh. So I think it's important for the listener to understand that um, you look at New York City, where we are right now at the Mysterious Bookstore, you know, discussing this. New York City is a city of 8.4, 8.5 million people. The first year I arrived as a newly minted FBI agent in 1991, New York City at the end of 1990, okay, city of 8.4 million people, had just suffered 2,245 homicides. That is an incredible incredible amount of, of senseless loss of life and homicides. Now, through the course of the 90s, and you can certainly attribute it to Jack Maple and Comstad and Stop, Question, and Frisk and the policing methodologies of, of, of broken windows and the, and the Keller uh, model of, you know, hey, stop the small crimes, the penny ante crimes, and then it will help you move to getting rid of the violent crimes, something that, that Bill Bratton, who was a two-time police commissioner, understood. The city of Newburgh, New York, now it's a place that in 2007, when I was dispatched to go up there, I lived two or three miles from, really from ground zero, from the zone, Lander Street, where the Bloods and the Latin Kings had been warring for a number of years. You mentioned the young kid, Jeffrey Zachary, in 2008, that was shot sitting on his stoop right across from Cornwall St. Luke's Hospital in Newburgh, right across from the, from the uh, emergency room. And his mother had suffered the loss of an older child three years earlier. He'd been in a gang. Jeffrey hadn't. Jeffrey was an A student, was a great kid. I'd coached him um, in, in pickup leagues at uh, Mount St. Mary's. Just a great kid that really inspired me. It's not that I needed that as an impetus, but it was enough to come back to the FBI and say, we need to do better here. Now for Newburgh in those days, say the, the early aughts, the 2000s, um, it's a city of 29,000 people, four miles by four square miles, about 70 miles north of New York City. And they were suffering 15, 18, 20, 25 homicides per capita. That's worse than New York City now, now that the crime rate, the violent crime rate has been driven down to, we get upset when there are 300 homicides. Any homicide's bad, but 300 homicides in a city of 8.4 million people when in 1990 there were 2,245, Newburgh became the most violent city in the state of New York, which is crazy when you think of the South Bronx, you think of Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, you think of Washington Heights and Rochester and Albany and Buffalo, but Newburgh was the most violent place. It was just a great place to kind of bring these things together and use empathy as a solution. Yeah, and I think what's crazy is like if you live up around that area, you know, you go over a bridge or you go a few miles further west or whatever it's completely different <laughs> there's none of that stuff going on um so i'm, I'm going to encourage folks to read your chapter and really uh, understand what happened you know what took place there so 
Thank you so much for sitting down with us. How do folks get a hold of you? So you can find me on Twitter at James A. Galliano, G-A-G-L-I-A-N-O. That's also my Instagram account, also my professional page on Facebook. I try to reach out to everybody that reaches out to me, and uh, I appreciate you having me on. Thanks. Thanks so much, Jim. Take care. We finish up today with Charles Eric Gordon. Charles Eric is a lawyer and private investigator. He specializes in missing air cases. His chapter theme is creativity. Charles Eric's chapter walks you through his career and how he was creative in finding people that didn't even know they were designated to inherit money. So we are here with Charles Eric Gordon, who is uh, the author of Chapter 11 on creativity. Charles, thanks for being here today, and why don't you tell me a little bit about your background. Hi, Matt. Uh, I'm an attorney, investigative counsel to the legal profession, government agencies, and the business community. My main area of concentration is tracking down missing people, especially those who've been absent for an extended period of time and or about whom very little information is known. Some very unusual cases sometimes. Yeah, I really appreciated your chapter because you, you kind of break down as to how you got into doing that type of work. And then uh, you gave some examples of, um, you know, some or some of the work that you've, you've done over the years. And, and I appreciate that you even brought it all the way back to your youth and just started talking about being a creative kid. Yeah, it's uh, to summarize that. To learn creativity, if you weren't born with it, and a lot of people have it innately and they lose it as they get older, watch kids at play. They can take a box that a dishwasher or a washing machine came into and turn it into a fort, a dollhouse, whatever their minds go. Their children are just very, very imaginative and creative. And that's what creativity is. It's imagination. It's intuition. It's thinking outside of the box and truthfully, it could also be banging square pegs into round holes because eventually, as weird as it sounds, it's going to fit if you bang hard enough. So tell me a little bit about um, you know, how this creativity, how you got into um, doing the, the air uh, research and, and give me some examples, quick examples of, of some of the work that you've done. Well, when I went to college at SUNY Cortland, I majored in English. And I thought that I might become a copywriter for an ad agency, but I got out during a recession in 1974, and I had a cousin who worked as a debt collector for Citibank. And he said, look, you can have a lot of fun, believe it or not. In the meantime, till you find something, try it out. So I went to work for Bankers Trust that now is only, uh, it's been taken over actually by uh, another bank and then taken over again and uh, I was a collector, and then I got into skip tracing, tracking down, in this case, missing debtors. And then I applied to law school, and while I was in law school, I worked at Bankers Trust during the summer setting up a student loan recapture program to track down people who had borrowed student loans who now this portfolio that had been newly discovered had to be located. And I enjoyed that. And then the year after that, I worked as an intern in the Queens District Attorney's Office where I got academic credit for law school. And because of my experience, I was given the opportunity not just to write memoranda of law or briefs. I worked with the detective squad and worked on wiretaps because of my knowledge of phone numbers and cross directories and had a lot of fun, drank a lot of coffee, went to some parties and gained some weight but it was very, very good experience. And then when I graduated law school, I ended up 
as a collection attorney. We ended up with another recession back in 1979, 1980, and eventually in 1983 I went out on my own and started my own practice, mainly investigative work. And while I was doing that, I was working part-time as an administrative law judge for New York City in the parking, uh, the, uh, parking Violations Bureau. A corruption scandal emerged in uh, 1986, and the commissioner knew what I did on the side. And I was brought in, allowed to keep my practice as long as it didn't involve the city, and I was brought in as a special investigative counsel to, uh, to help try to clean up what had happened and to find debtors and do whatever the commissioner wanted. And it was very interesting. I only stayed for a while and then by 1987 I was totally back on my own where I've been since that time. Yeah, uh, it definitely some great stories. Uh, I definitely enjoyed reading uh, about it and, and how creative you were. So why don't you tell folks how they can get a hold of you? I can be reached at sleuth32 at AOL.com. Sleuth, S-L-E-U-T-H, 32. Sleuth like a detective at AOL.com. Or old-fashioned phone numbers, 212-433-5065. Uh, my office is in Woodbury, New York. And that 433 in the old days was General 3. And a, a, a parting uh, fun fact about uh, Charles Eric Gordon. He is uh, the Society of Professional Investigators, uh, the uh, like uh, Director of uh, Public Relations, right? What's that title? I'm Director of Public Relations, Membership Director, and if you get to the bar early enough, I'm also the organization's Social Director. There we go. A good way to end the uh, the podcast show here. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, I'm going to kind of get to uh, business here and uh, start networking and doing what we need to do. Charles Eric, I thank you for your time, and uh, thank you for contributing to the book. And we'll talk to you soon, okay? Take care. Bye. Thanks for checking out this episode. A special thank you to the authors we were able to sit down with. And thanks to everyone who supported the book. It's a great read. A special thank you to Delve Point and the Society for Professional Investigators for sponsoring this episode. Make sure to come out to the SPI meeting on February 20th at Forlini's. Next week, Matt is back in the studio and he will chat with Jeff Evans from Delve Point. They'll discuss mistakes PIs make when doing database research. Please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and check out our YouTube channel, also known as PI Perspectives.